The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Great to have you along here as we kick off another week of programs. I always love Mondays because it's, you know, the energy gets fired up early. We get to look forward to a week of great shows, great interviews, great discussions, and that will be uh, certainly no exception tonight. We're going to be talking about the D.B. Cooper mystery. Now, judging by the chat room, not everybody is familiar with this story, which I find interesting, although I wasn't particularly familiar with the story. I mean, I knew what it was, but I watched a documentary on HBO, I think it was, HBO Max, um, I don't know, I don't know, a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. And it really intrigued me when I learned some of the details of this story. The, the basic story is that a man boarded a commercial aircraft in Washington State. The aircraft was, I believe, was uh, leaving from Seattle and heading to Reno. And um, he boarded the aircraft, and he... Uh, sat in the back row. Nobody thought anything of it. And of course, back in uh, the early 1970s, air traffic was much different. There was no security whatsoever. Uh, you didn't. They didn't think they needed it, although there was a rash of hijackings throughout the 70s that changed things a little bit. But at that time, there was no security. So he sat down, the plane took off, and in the air, shortly after takeoff, he motioned to one of the flight attendants, handed her a note. The note said, I have a bomb. And I want $200,000. So um, our guest tonight is going to talk about the D.B. Cooper mystery, because the mystery isn't that part. The mystery is the fact that after the plane landed, the passengers got off the plane. He got the money, $200,000, stayed on the plane with the crew. They took off again. And during the flight, he jumped out of the aircraft, because in addition to asking for $200,000, he asked for four parachutes, which he got. So he jumped out of the aircraft and disappeared into the night. No one knows what happened. No one knows if he survived. No one knows if he maybe died on the jump. I mean, it's a very dangerous, risky jump to begin with, let alone doing it at night. And and I think the weather conditions were poor as well. So there's a lot of speculation that he never even survived. But some people, many people, in fact, believe he did survive. And there's been several people suggested as suspects. And Joe Koenig, uh, Koenig has written a book about this very topic, and he names a suspect. His book is called Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper. And uh, he's going to tell us who he thinks D.B. Cooper is or was, and he's going to tell us why. But we're gonna also going to talk about the D.B. Cooper story, because it's one of those stories that for, what now, 30, 50 years has just intrigued people, conspiracies, um, just true crime fanatics. This is one of those things that people uh, don't want to let go of because it was never solved, and it's such a fascinating story. And again, our guest Joe Koenig will talk about it tonight. He is not just an author, but he's also a forensic linguist, and we'll find out how that skill and that that profession helped him come to his conclusions. Don't forget to subscribe to us. Go to YouTube, look for JV Johnson. When you find that, please hit the subscribe button. Also, you can follow us and subscribe to us on Twitch. The Twitch channel is also just JV Johnson. Very simple to find. And uh, if you're on the YouTube channel, join us in the chat room for the live program. Also, you'll find hundreds of back episodes of the program. Some really terrific interviews in the archives on the YouTube channel. And you can find uh, back episodes also in the podcast version of the program. That can be found on any major podcast distribution platform. You just have to, you have to search when you're looking for the podcast for Beyond Reality Paranormal. That is the name of the podcast version of the show. So I think I got all of the uh, intro stuff out of the way. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have our guest again tonight. We're talking with Joe Koenig, and the topic is D.B. Cooper, the mystery of D.B. Cooper. It's beyond reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Haw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Thank you for being with us tonight. We are excited about tonight's program. The D.B. Cooper mystery has been a 50-year puzzle. And it has been speculated about, it has been investigated, it has been written about, it has been filmed about, and 
There are a lot of theories. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas. Some believe that D.B. Cooper did not survive jumping out of the aircraft that night. Many others believe he did, and he lived freely among us um, and may still be living among us, for that matter. Um, Our guest tonight, Joe Koenig, is uh, someone who's looked into this particular case with a a magnifying glass and a microscope and has reached some conclusions and written about them in a book called Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper. Joe is a certified fraud examiner. He's also a forensic linguist. He's been retired from the Michigan State Police after 26 years. He has 56, or 50 years excuse me, of investigative experience in both the public and private sectors. He was a lead investigator on the Jimmy Hoffa case and also a manager of investigations for a Fortune 500 company. Joe, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you, JV. I'm honored to be with you. Uh, you know, the D.B. Cooper story, it's one of those stories that once you you, you start looking at it, it, it becomes a bit of a rabbit hole. And it's one of those stories that gets its tentacles around you and you can't let go because you want to figure it out and you want to find answers. When did all of that happen to you? When did you become so very interested in the D.B. Cooper story. Well, in mid-2016, my publisher, Vern Jones, I had written a, a book prior to this one called Getting the Truth, and it's about forensic linguistics. But I got to know Vern real well, my publisher. He uh, received information from one of his editors that said, uh, hey, I've got a guy I want you to talk to. He says he knows who D.B. Cooper is. So Vern was in Florida at the time where the source lived and uh, visited him, and after six hours came back and talked to his chief editor, Dirk Weringa, and uh, they discussed it. They started looking into some things. Um, uh, the source was a, a man by the name of Carl Lauren, who recently died, unfortunately. He's a wonderful man, actually a brilliant guy. He was a parachuter uh, with a long history of uh, experimenting with parachutes, along with the guy he said was D.B. Cooper, and we later identified as D.B. Cooper, Walt Recca. And uh, so they got me involved in mid-2016 because the evidence was starting to compile and they felt they needed a professional investigator to assist them. So I was more than happy to do so. Uh, The first thing I looked at were some books and records that Carl had been given by Walter Recca uh, as proof that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper helping to prove that he was D.B. Cooper. Some of those documents were passports, um, diaries, notes, records. And uh, I went through all those records and found that they were, um, appeared uh, original. Uh, They were contemporaneous notes. They were written in different colored inks, kind of all in the hand, same handwriting, but different colored inks and different dates, um, all of which told me that these records were probably pretty genuine and that whoever made these records uh, made them at, at the time, contemporaneously. So I could rely on some of those records. So I went into it deeper and deeper, and finally they gave me some uh, audio tapes that Carl had recorded with Walt's permission uh, that where Carl detailed um, his confession, basically, about being D.B. Cooper and gave him some details about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and what happened afterwards. And uh, if you'd like, I've got some excerpts of that tape that I can play for your audience if we have time. Uh, but I looked into it I, um, uh, very deeply. It took me two years, quite frankly, two and a half years. And uh, I had the, uh, the uh, tapes transcribed. Uh, my wife put in over 100 hours fine-tuning that transcription, 
because I needed all the ahs and pauses, and I needed a, a perfect transcription of those audio tapes to do my forensic uh, analysis of it. And uh, after all of that, I, uh, I went through it and uh, very meticulously and found, as a forensic linguist, that Walt Recca was uh, being truthful and that along with other evidence, including eyewitness evidence um, and other evidence that we could corroborate, uh, deduced that Walt Recca was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. There is no other suspect has, uh, has this kind of evidence that proves that he was D.B. Cooper. Let's. I don't want to get into too much detail yet, but I do want to know, when Walter was passing this information to Carl, when he was being recorded and confessing uh, that he was D.B. Cooper, was this, uh, in sorts, a, a deathbed confession, late-in-life confession, or had he been trying to <clears throat> convince people of his identity all along? No, he hadn't told anyone. Uh, Walter had not told anyone, to my knowledge, that uh, he was D.B. Cooper. Carl was a longtime friend and associate of uh, Walt. Carl and Walt were in a paratroopers uh, organization centered out of Saginaw, the Brown Airport in Saginaw, which uh, the owner there allowed these guys to go up in planes and drop out of them and do their little experiments on different parachute apparatus. Uh, many times they would just test to see how close to the earth they could come before they released their chutes. I mean, they were crazy. Nice. Yeah. These guys were, uh, were nuts. And, uh, but they were really, really good at parachuting. And, uh, but there was a group of them, five or six of them, maybe more. Uh, but Carl was kind of the leader. He was the respected man of the group. He, uh, and, and he and Walt became close friends. So over the years, uh, as soon as it happened, back in 1971, uh, Carl knew or felt immediately that that was Walter. Really? So he suspected it at, at the time? Yeah, but he hadn't, he hadn't been in touch with Walter for many years. And then they finally got back together again. They started uh, meeting, the old group started meeting again up in the Oscoda area where Walt lived in Michigan, and uh, Walt, uh, or Carl, kept kind of uh, trying to convince him to confide in in Carl that uh, he was D.B. Cooper, and finally one night, Walt said, yeah, I'm, I'm D.B. Cooper, mm -hmm. and uh, so it was at that point that, uh, <clears throat> and it's kind of funny because Carl is not Technically oriented was not. You uh, had to send to communicate with him. He had to send emails to his wife, who would then run it <laughs> run it over to to Carl, and he would then have her transcribe something and, and send it back. But when it, it when it came to recording, he uh, he he could barely handle it. So what he had to do, he had to go over to his daughter's house, where she had a recorder, and he would then record the conversations with Walter from Carl's daughter's house. And uh, that meant that he had to call Walt all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, it's quite a story, but uh, Carl did a fantastic job gathering the evidence. He didn't ask forensically sound questions structure-wise, uh, he contaminated the the whole scene quite a bit, but nevertheless, there was sufficient evidence there for me to conclude that this was uh, that uh, Walt was telling the truth and that he was D.B. Cooper. How now, Walt has since died. Walt died in 2014. Yeah. Kyle died just last year. So you didn't get a chance to talk to Walt. He had died prior to you becoming involved in this investigation, right? Right. Yeah. How many hours or how, how much recorded material did Carl uh, produce with Walter? Was it hours or was it a 15-minute conversation? What kind of volume is there? Well, we've got two and a half hours of tapes. 
he recorded Wald over the course of about two and a half months from, uh, uh, gosh, what was that? In November of 2008 mm-hmm. to uh, January of 2009. And then following that, then uh, Carl wrote out a statement that he said that Walt dictated to him in which uh, Walt confessed to the crime. And it's in that confession that he made the statement, I am D.B. Cooper. <clears throat> now, that's a very strong statement. Yeah. Forensic linguists look at, look at every word in the statement, every word that isn't there that should be, and every word that uh, uh, is there that shouldn't be, or should be that isn't there. And uh, But... So you look for precision, precision, directness, and uh, simplicity. And you can't get more precise and simple than saying, I am D.B. Cooper. It's not, I was D.B. Cooper. It's, I am D.B. Cooper. Now, Carl transcribed that, and I had that, and I could have used that, but I chose not to, only because, uh, number one, Walt did not sign it. That's really where one of our key witnesses comes in. Uh, Walter uh, was given that statement by Carl, who transcribed, who, who wrote it, and then had a neighbor transcribe it. Sent it to Walter, asked him to take it down to a rotary and sign it. Uh, well, while Walter was contemplating that, he talked to his sister Sandy and his niece Lisa. Uh, about it, and they read the confession, and they talked to Walt about it, and they convinced Walt not to sign it for fear that it would set him up for a prosecution, a criminal prosecution. So Walt never signed that confession, uh, and since it was composed, written and composed by Carl, I didn't uh, feel I could use it in my forensic analysis. So I didn't use that except for the IMDB Cooper statement. Um, now, Lisa, who was Walt's niece, uh, very credible witness. I mean, a fantastic uh, witness. She's a human relations specialist. She uh, worked for a company in the, the nuclear industry, uh, had to get a Q clearance, which is higher than my top secret clearance. Uh, she's got, uh, she was uh, vice president of the UNLV Alumni Association. This is a credible witness. And uh, she talked to Walt about why he did it and uh, what he did with the money and got all the details as well. Um, there is an eyewitness from after he landed, uh, he hijacked the plane. Uh, got um, and all the uh, the details, of course, are in my book. But he got the money, and uh, the pilots went back up in the air. And uh, as they're flying, uh, he jumps out and lands in a field near Cleelum, Washington. Now, this is this is the detail that gives us our greatest concern in that it is uh, miles away from the path the FBI thought the plane took. Now, it was a nasty night, rainy, cloudy, and remember, it's 1971. The radar and uh, the electronics uh, weren't then what they are now. Also... Uh, the forensic evidence isn't what it is now. Right. For instance, there's no DNA. There, you know, DNA wasn't even a thought back then. There were fingerprints, and that's about it. Uh, eyewitness testimony, you have uh, sketchings and things like that. But Walter jumped out uh, in the rain at night, um, landed in a field. He hit a, he had, hit a dead tree, broke his leg and uh, got down in a field and then uh, bundled up all his money around his raincoat and uh, strapped it 
to his, uh, took the raincoat off and put all the money in it and then tied the raincoat to him and uh, walked down the road because uh, just before he landed, he had seen some lights in the distance. So he walked toward those lights, and it turns out that was the Tianaway Cafe. Um, and uh, so he walked into that K, that cafe. On his way, he was passed by a dump truck, <clears throat> which later pulled, uh, pulled into the cafe, which is where Walter ended up. When he got in the cafe, Walt says he saw a guy dressed like a cowboy, had a guitar, and dressed like a cowboy, and he asked this cowboy if he, uh, if, uh, he would, uh, if Carl called a friend of his to pick him up, would this guy, cowboy, give his friend directions how to get there? He said, sure. So, Carl called his old friend, a guy by the name of Don Brennan, another paratrooper. Uh, at, at one point, he was dropping into uh, doing firefighting in Alaska. But he, um, he dialed up Don Brennan, who uh, he had apparently talked to before, and told Brennan, uh, I did it. Come pick me up. This guy uh, is going to give you directions. And then I said that out of earshot, and then asked Cowboy up to the phone, and Cowboy told Don Brennan uh, how to get there. Had to ask, asked Brennan where he was coming from, and he said, well, I'm coming from Spokane area. And uh, so he told him how to get there, and they gave him directions. And then Cowboy uh, was a musician, and actually he's a darn good one. His name is Jeff Osadich. And uh, he's a very well-known man in the Cleelum area. Matter of fact, he was a policeman there at one time in that area. Um, but he was also in a band. He's a great singer, and his son is also very good. And matter of fact, they wrote a song and uh, performed a piece about the D.B. Cooper case, which uh, really, if if we, <laughs> if we could get that out there, that would be a hit. Oh, because wow. it's, it's Yeah, it's very well done. Um so um, Jeff goes on and does his uh, does his uh, thing that night. Remember, it's Thanksgiving, the eve of Thanksgiving, in no- November twenty third, nineteen seventy one. So Brendan picks up Walt and uh, on the way uh, back to uh, Walt's home. Walt lived in Heartline, Washington, and uh, had driven to. Uh, uh, Port uh, Spokane parked his car there the the day before um, on the 22nd of November. Drove down to Portland. He parked his car in Spokane because they would never uh, think to find the skyjacker's car there. If he if he did it from if he if he drove down to Portland and parked there they would be able to identify his car. So that's why he did that. He drove to uh, Spokane and then uh, uh, and then took a bus to Portland, spent the night there getting uh, his briefcase, all the, all the stuff together to construct his briefcase uh, to make it look like a bomb, bought his ticket the next morning, took a, took a cab to the airport, uh, and uh, got on the plane and, and, and did it before he could think twice about it. He said he was scared to death, but uh, he did it. So um, we've got eyewitnesses. We've got Lisa, who uh, talked to him several times. Uh, Lisa's mother, Sandy, has since died, I believe. I'm not sure she's still alive. Uh, but Lisa is certainly a very credible witness and corroborates everything Walt told us. <clears throat> and we located, Carl actually located, Cowboy. The guy is by the name of Jeff Osadich mm-hmm. down in the Cleelum area. So uh, uh, Vern and, and uh, his uh, party went down and met with Jeff, videotaped, him and got a, a, a videotape statement, 
which uh, I later transcribed and did forensic analysis on Jeff's statement as well and found him to be very truthful. Um, so I eventually talked to Jeff. Uh, Jeff also produced a written statement, which I also analyzed, uh, showing, again, consistency and truthfulness. Uh, so these are very, very credible witnesses who corroborate some of the various points in Walt's story uh, that uh, it's just too much of a coincidence. Now, after Walt got the money and settled in a little bit, the following year he bought a house in Spokane, uh, and he described it to us on the tape. And uh, we eventually found that address, found the prior owner who sold the house to him, a guy by the name of Jim Everman from uh, the Spokane area, uh, and he used to flip houses. And he remembered Walt, described him to us, identified him from a picture, and uh, gave us a consistent account with what Walter had given us. So, I mean, along the way, there are all kinds of checkpoints where we've corroborated the evidence, and uh, I'm convinced this uh, Walter Eck is D.B. Cooper. Now, just a couple quick questions um, about what you just said. Jeff, the cowboy, when you when his statement was taken, he basically corrobor- corroborated uh, Walter's uh, detail of events, uh, whereby being in the cafe and making the phone call and telling his friend how to get there. He, he remembered that, and, 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 and that was his testimony as well? He did. He remembered that. Matter of fact, one of the questions we asked him was, how did you remember this? He said, well, it's, it's kind of funny. He said, of course, I'm a policeman. <clears throat> and uh, he uh, said the guy had on loafers, penny loafers. He said, I always wanted penny loafers as a kid. And uh, he, as a matter of fact, he remembers seeing Walt walking in the rain, uh, holding a raincoat uh, when he should have been wearing it. As he walked to the uh, the Tianaway Cafe, and uh, so his details were just exactly what Walter had told us. I mean, exactly. Wow! And is is Jeff still alive? Is he still he, here with us? Jeff is. Jeff is, and that would be a nice little interview for you. Yeah, that would be a terrific interview. I'd love to be able to get a hold of him and, and, and talk. Um, Have his kid play a song for you. That would be even better. I'd love that, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there, uh, there's so many directions I want to go with the questions, but before we get too deep into this, I want to back up just a little bit, Joe, because sure. um, not everybody, and it's surprising, but not everybody are, is familiar with the details of what the D.B. Cooper case is. Can you just outline what the crime was, how, how it started, what happened, you know, to bring us up to the point where you just started telling us Walter's story, where he parachuted into a field. Yeah, let me read what's on the back of my uh, book. It kind of summarizes it pretty, pretty well and very quickly. On the night of November 24th, 1971, a man named D.B. Cooper, well, that's, that's actually not... Right, that's what he's known by. Uh, He he, uh, he had a different name when he boarded the aircraft, but a man named D.B. Cooper hijacked Northwest Airlines 305, bound for Seattle from Portland. In exchange for 36 passengers, he received $200,000 in used $20 bills and four parachutes. He ordered the plane to take off from SeaTac Airport, strapped the $200,000 to his body, and parachuted out the rear of that plane into the dark. Now, that was a 727, remember, J.V.? That, that's, one of the, that's the plane that had the staircase that uh, came down from the rear of the plane mm-hmm. uh, in a longitudinal way. So uh, he... Uh, parachuted out the rear of that plane into the dark, cold Washington state sky, never to be seen or heard from until now. So I don't know if you need more details, I can give them to you, but well, yeah, that's, you know, that's do, an overview. I do have a few questions, and maybe you can intersperse mm-hmm. what you learned from Walter's statements and his recordings 
um, with you know answering some of these questions. But where did the name D.B. Cooper come from? Is that how he, he identified himself to the flight attendants? No, it was uh, something like Dan Cooper. That's right, Dan And Cooper. Uh, the D.B. Cooper actually came from a reporter who had uh, uh, asked a question, and uh, everybody using that name, and everybody picked up on it, and from there on it was D.B. Cooper. So he never, he never he, he never actually used that. He never those used initials. That. He said Dan Cooper, but he never said DB Cooper. Right. Well, it, um, do we know why two hundred thousand dollars? I mean, obviously in nineteen seventy one, that was a heck of a lot more money than it is today. But it seems like it's a small sum given the risks he was taking. Well, uh, it's really not a small sum because in those days, that's uh, over a million dollars today. But uh, there was, he says there's only so much you can carry. You know, he's, right. he's parachuting from a plane. And uh, he's uh, adding weight uh, on a drop from uh, in the night uh, without being able to see where he's going. Uh, so that's what he chose to do, a smaller amount that he could uh, strap to his body and uh, make it down with that amount. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't considered the weight factor, but obviously someone who jumps from airplanes and has done it, done it a lot is very sensitive to that. Yeah, J.V., I'm convinced if the FBI would pick this up, pick up my book, and uh, go through the evidence, and uh, we'll help them if, if they want it, uh, they'll close this case. Well, that was going to be my next question. When uh, Walter was giving this testimony and talking to his friend Carl and giving details and connecting himself with that crime, uh, was the FBI ever involved at that point? Did they? Did the FBI ever talk to Walter? No, never. He was so he was never on their radar. No, uh, and. Uh... Kind of funny, but Don Brennan was on their radar. They went out and interviewed him, but mm-hmm. Don Brennan was a big guy. He he didn't meet, the, he didn't fit the physical description. Uh, but they actually went out and interviewed Don Brennan because of his paratrooping. And Don Brennan, of course, was a friend of Walter's. Yeah, oh yeah, he's the guy who who picked up Walter at the Tiananmen uh, Cafe, Tiananmen Cafe, and. Uh, Walt gave him $5,000 in uh, cash uh, to uh, pick him up and take him back to Walt's home in uh, Heartline. And uh, now you may remember, J.V., that there was money found along the Columbia River. That's right. That the FBI later discovered uh, the serial numbers to to that money were uh, identified as money taken in this skyjacking in the D.B. Cooper case. Right. Now, that location, the FBI couldn't explain it, and we can't explain it uh, in terms of how that money got there, because even if he had dropped some from the plane, uh, it it, it couldn't have carried in that condition all the way over to uh, where it was found. We think, we speculate that Don Brennan who was very, very cautious, I think had uh, may have had a record. He had had some contact with the police and was very, very worried about uh, getting tied into this case. And uh, matter of fact, he talked monthly with Carl after this all happened. They were still close friends, and Don always told Walter, never, never bring up this case on the phone. <clears throat> so we think it's possible because Brennan lived and worked around that Columbia River area. We think he may have uh, tossed the money in there. So you think to, you think that he, t- he the money he got paid from Walter to for the ride um, he ditched, or do you think he buried it to pick it to try to find it later? Just just speculating. Yeah, but, I don't know, JV. Yeah. That's the only that's the only logical explanation uh, we can come up with. Yeah, I you know I, I'm not entirely uh, sure um, what the condition of the of that money was when it's found. I was a little confused in some of the information that I saw. Was it buried, Joe, or was it was it did it look like it had been drifting on the river and just kind of got lodged somewhere? Well, 
Uh, kind of a good question. I know the FBI said that it couldn't have been buried from uh, there in uh, 1971. Yeah. Uh, because it hadn't deteriorated sufficiently. Another thing, the uh, bills uh, in the documents I read were wrapped with rubber bands, <clears throat> and uh, the bills would have been wrapped with uh, paper bands. That's right. That's how the banks did it in those days, and actually today. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions there, J.B., I don't know. Yeah, that's what makes this such an interesting story. Again, tonight our guest is Joe Koenig. Joe is the author of a book, Getting the Truth, IMDb Cooper. Joe is also uh, a forensic linguist. Joe, tell us about that part of your work and how it applies here. First of all, what is a forensic linguist? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Um, You remember the Unabomber case? Yes. Um. Kaczynski. Yeah, I was Ted just going to say Kaczynski, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, well, the way that case was cracked, uh, he had done sent several bombs killing and maiming many people over several years. And finally, the FBI convinced him to write a manifesto. Hey, you're doing all this. What are you doing it for? Why don't you tell the world what it is you're trying to get attention uh, to, and, uh, you, you know, why don't you serve your, your needs right. by writing a manifesto? Right. So the guy did, and he wrote a lengthy manifesto. Newspapers published it, and a guy read that, and he said, boy, there's some, some phrases here that seem familiar to me. And he looked at old correspondence from his brother, and some of those were similar. Uh, And he uh, ended up, after a lot of thinking, ended up going to the FBI with his tip. Hey, I think this it might be my my brother. And he gave them some known uh, writings from the brother, and they put forensic linguists on it. And a forensic linguist looks at, uh, you look for communication patterns. Communication pattern could be, and I'm speaking in general terms, let's get off the Unabomber for a moment, but a communication pattern could be a rhythm and pace of talking, speech, how the person uses his hands when talking, her eye movements, blinking rates, tone, intensity of the voice, anything used to communicate uh, is of interest to a forensic linguist. And we look for patterns that that individual has and calibrate uh, to the individual's unique patterns. And uh, once we get a fix on their communication patterns, then we look for changes in those patterns. And the changes had to have occurred because something happened. What caused it? There are many variables that could cause a change in communication pattern, a noise, distraction, deception, and so on. Uh, And through uh, a lot of uh, practice and study and research, a forensic linguist can get a feel for uh, when a person's communication patterns change and try to drill down to figure out why that change occurred. Um, so uh, we look for uh, each and every word, each and every communication mechanism. We seek to identify communication patterns and changes in those patterns uh, and then try to figure out what caused that change in patterns. Now, in the Unabomber case, the FBI analyst or analysts saw some key phrases. Uh, words were used in a kind of a unique way um, and, and in a pattern. Uh, so they compared that, those phrases in the manifesto to the known writings of uh, Ted Kaczynski and discovered that they were very, very similar, sufficient 
for the FBI to get a search warrant for Kaczynski's cabin out in uh, Montana, I think it was. And uh, they uh, they hit it and solved the case. Wow. How, yeah. long, how long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for, well, since I retired. So it's 30 years. Wow. Yeah. You um, probably, in addition to having to look into Walter himself, uh, you obviously had to study the case so you could put pieces together. Did you get an opportunity to see the documentary that's currently on, I think it's HBO or HBO Max, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper? You know, I'm I'm so convinced that Walter is D.B. Cooper, and I've seen several of these that I don't tune into all of them. It's like the Hoffa case, same yeah. thing. Yeah, I was just curious. I mean, you know, some of the, the leading suspects, obviously, as an investigator, you must have some a bit of an opinion, and you have, you've come to your conclusions, obviously. Um, but I just wondered if any of those other names uh, that have been floated around had uh, anything that maybe even just made you scratch your head a little bit? None of them come close to the evidence that we've accumulated on uh, Walter Ecke. None of them. Most of them are, uh, they really take leaps in, in reason and have no evidence. Yeah. None of them have the evidence uh, compilation that we have. Let's talk, None of them. let's talk about some of the evidence. Obviously, you've got Walter's statements, and you've got some corroborating uh, witnesses as well. You've got um, um, the cowboy. You have, Has anybody ever had an opportunity? I'm assuming he's no, no longer with us, but to talk to Brennan? I don't think he's uh, alive any longer. Yeah. But, yeah, I think he died. Matter of fact... I got his date of death in here. So yeah, he died in 2011. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, that's one of the difficult things with a case that's you know yeah 50 years old. Um, but talk about some of the other pieces of evidence. Maybe some of the you know some of the paperwork or some of these other things that you were able <clears throat> to look at and um, verify that goes into the column of yeah, uh, Walter was DB Cooper. All right. Well. In the in the tape transcripts, uh, there's an audio uh, set of my uh, book, and in there we've got the actual recordings of uh, Walter and uh, Carl. But in there, he talks about wearing long underwear. Mm-hmm. You know, when he made the jump, um, and he actually ended up. He he had his the lower the legs. Uh, portion of that underwear, and he sent that along with hundreds of other pieces of evidence to uh, Carl. So I went down and interviewed Carl. I did forensic analysis on Carl as well and his wife, Loretta. Um, wonderful people. We spent a couple of days down there where I interviewed them and uh, looked at all the evidence, uh, questioned all the evidence, mm-hmm. Uh, even went to an attorney that Carl had gone to and talked to about the case. Um, There is a lot of evidence uh, that uh, Vern Jones has in his possession, and we've had, uh, when we do uh, book reviews and talks to uh, other organizations, we show them the evidence that we have. But, you know, we've got that home purchase Right. That Walter actually gave us the wrong address, and it turns out he had the the numbers inverted. And uh, I think it was Dirk Wearing, our great editor, uh, found the actual home, and then we found the prior owner who remembered the you know the exact details that Walt gave us. Um, let's see. Was there some identification paperwork or anything like that 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 was was contemporary that I thought I well, saw something? Well, nothing that said you know he was DB Cooper. No, of course not. Yeah, uh, but it, it, it all uh, coincided with Walt's statements about who mm-hmm. he was, when he was this. Uh, there, um, uh, he wouldn't say it, but it appears he worked for some. 
uh, either a domestic or foreign intelligence agency at one time. And uh, so he had uh, different passports, uh, all stamped with different names. Um, he was, uh, you know, he was a con man, and he was a daring con man. And uh, he was a guy that uh, Carl and Carl's friends knew uh, that you couldn't mess with because he was he had a dark side to him. So he told Lisa. Lisa said, "No, well, why did you do this?" He said, uh, "I'd rather be dead than poor." <laughs> he was he was born. Uh, his dad was died when he was a young young kid in Detroit in the Polish neighborhood, um, and he was raised uh, in that tough neighborhood. And I think that's where he, uh, there was a key phrase he used throughout his uh, transcript. He used the word, the phrase, right there, uh, 214 times in these uh, transcripts. Um, and uh, to a forensic linguist, that's important. And uh, he used that whether he was talking about the weather or whether he was talking about the hijacking. <laughs> Uh, so it was. It showed consistency in that his stress level wasn't high when he was talking about D.B. Cooper compared to the weather. I mean, it didn't change. So that's another truth-telling trait that uh, you know. If you were to write a letter to your uh, to the president of the United States, chances are you wouldn't use a contraction. Right. You formalize it. And uh, so there's more stress when you're writing to somebody like that rather than your wife. And uh, so you use contractions when you uh, write a letter to your spouse um, versus to the president. So that's an indication that you're more relaxed. If you're telling the truth, you're more relaxed. And uh, that's another uh, key point in forensic linguistics. Joe, you probably know um, the uh, maybe the witnesses of the crime itself. You probably know who they are better than I do. But I do know there was a flight attendant that sat next to D.B. Cooper throughout most of the flight. Um, And I know that she's been talking recently. Has anybody like that ever been played some of these tapes to see if they recognize the voice? And as a forensic linguist, you'd know better as well. Can people remember a voice after 50 years? Oh, I think so. I think so. And and one of the things that I'm convinced uh, the FBI should follow up on is, uh, and they probably do have in their documentation that they haven't released, the... Uh, Key phrases and uh, right. words, right. Uh, any unique communication patterns that the skyjacker um, used when talking to that stewardess. I'm sure they've got a record of that, and uh, that's you know that's well documented in our case. But yeah, I, I think uh, they're all pretty elderly, scared. And, of course, you know, we're working on a budget. Um, it's not like a police department right. where you've got, you've got endless resources. So uh, we didn't try to do that. And uh, I would have liked to. I would have liked to have gone to Cleellum, uh, but uh, our budget wouldn't allow it. Uh, and just one other evidence-related question. Um, I had read uh, at some point they took some i think it was skin cells off of a necktie that db cooper had been wearing and compared it i think at least to um ld cooper who was one of the suspects that was being talked about by one of the family members as being db cooper and they, they weren't a match um which is uh you know one i guess reason to believe that uh, that story is inaccurate however there does seem to be some dna that exists. Have have you ever thought about trying to make a DNA comparison? Oh, absolutely. Um, the uh, D.B. Cooper smoked, uh, I think it was Pell-Mell cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me look. I think it is Pell-Mell's. Anyway, um, which is the same brand that Walt smoked. 
uh, and we got that from witnesses who used to pal around with. That's the only brand he smoked. So he smoked the same cigarette. But on the plane, uh, D.B. Cooper uh, uh, smoked several cigarettes, and they had those cigarette butts. They confiscated it. The right. FBI did. Right. That that would be excellent DNA evidence. But I think they lost those, didn't they? Didn't they lose the cigarette butts? That's what I'd heard. That that is the story I've heard. Yeah. And uh, um and and plus, you know, it depends how they stored it. And again, DNA wasn't even a thought back in those days. So if you put those cigarette butts in a plastic right. container and uh, moisture built up, that would degrade that DNA such that it wouldn't be useful anyway. So uh, that's a real long shot to get something like that. Now, um, you know, the tie issue, I think that was analyzed, and there were some specific metals uh, detected on that tie. Walt, you worked at a, uh, of course, as a welder, and he worked at the uh, Cooley Dam during this. Mm. Matter of fact, after the skyjacking, he went to work that following Monday with his broken leg. <laughs> and his supervisor sent him to the doctor, and the doctor repaired it for him and said, uh, the doctor told Walter, hey, this isn't a recent, uh, I mean, this just didn't happen today. And Walter gave him some song and dance, but the doctor repaired it. Uh, but he went to work that following Monday so as not to raise any suspicion. Wow. So th- that's the kind of detail. And, you know, we'd love to get the records from the mining company or yeah. the, uh, or, or the, the dam company. I, I, the medical records available. Probably, I mean, I don't know if, they, if yeah. those type of yeah. records survived. I or... mean, uh, but uh, you can only you can only put so much time into it. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. Let's. T- I want to talk a little bit about um, why not not just this case, but cases like this are so fascinating to people. I mean, true crime um, is seeing an amazing popularity through podcasting and documentary filmmaking. You know, things like Making a Murderer or The Staircase, or you know, there's dozens of them, and they're the top rated shows on things like Netflix. What is the fascination, Joe, do you think, with true crime? Well, everybody likes to likes to be able to solve something. Yeah. I think it's like a puzzle. And uh, by the way, we're working hard. Uh, Vern is working hard to get a movie made uh, on uh, on this case, and especially because we have all the evidence. Yeah. Uh, and Carl's uh, book, by the way, D.B. Cooper and Me is out there, and uh, there's a nice videotape on that as well. But um, there's a yeah, there's there's still a lot to be done on this case. I mean, uh, there's a lot of interest, and uh, we know we got we got the man. And in addition to that, you know, in addition to this fascination with true crime. Uh, when it comes to D.B. Cooper specifically, D.B. Cooper became a bit of a cult hero, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that videotape, you'll see uh, recordings. Now, where Carl lived uh, in Florida, there was an airport there, uh, the D-Land Airport, which is kind of a hub for skydivers. And uh, so Carl was very active over in that area, and he's a legend there. Uh, to many of the skydivers, and they've got on tape many of the skydivers talking about how they revered D.B. Cooper, and and uh, so it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. There are, and pe- the interesting thing is they really don't want the thing solved. Right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the mystery is 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 more appealing to them than uh, any of the real the real answers, I suppose. Um, yeah. You obviously know, uh, based on uh, you know your work, there are people who disagree with your findings, and they throw up all sorts of things. What do you say to folks who say, uh, I, I, "I don't think this can be the guy"? I, you, you must have heard that before. Oh, I have, and uh, I just tell them, "Look at the evidence. No other, no other case has the evidence." I mean, we've got, uh, you know, I presented this to prosecutors, L. Brooks Patterson, who. 
God bless his soul, died here uh, last year, I believe, or the year before, who was uh, a very well-known Michigan politician who was a prosecutor in Oakland County back in the days of the Oakland County child killer case, which I worked as well. Uh, but he looked at the case and said, uh, Joe, based on, matter of fact, he's got a writing in here, an endorsement on my book saying that uh, in meticulous detail, Joe Kittig traces every step of RECA, a.k.a. AKA Cooper's life and career, and pieces together a compelling case that Walt RECA is indeed the infamous hijacker, D.B. Cooper. If I were still the prosecuting attorney in Oakland County and this hijacking occurred within my jurisdiction, based on the investigative work of Joe Koenig, I would charge Walt Recca with the hijacking of that plane. So, you know, I, I know, I know we could prosecute Walt if we if he was still alive. It's that strong. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, in your mind, have you or let's say the collective we uh, solved the case of DB Cooper, at least his identity, anyway? Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well. Um, no, I'm convinced. And there's probably no way we can ever uh, make it formalize that. And and I don't think the FBI is would posthumously charge somebody. I don't know. I don't know how any of that works. You probably know better than me. No, I don't see that. But I would really like to see them pick up uh, this case and uh, take a look at it. Yeah. And uh, and close their case. It's odd um, that they haven't. Have you have you presented your findings to them in any fashion? Well, you know, one of my endorsements, um, I had several special agents in charge uh, review my book and gave me uh, endorsements. One of them is from, let me get her name. Uh, one of them's from an old buddy of mine, the FBI, uh, Jim Esposito, who was special agent charter of, of the New York FBI office. But uh, uh, Kathleen McChesney, who was the number three in uh, rank in the FBI at one time, she was a former executive assistant director. Uh, she said Joe Koenig's exceptional ability to gather and analyze information from key witnesses and documents has resulted in a truly compelling case that Walter Recca is the real D.B. Cooper. So I've, you know, I've, I've tried to lay it on the doorsteps of the uh, FBI, um, and hopefully they'll pick it up. Yeah, it's in their hands then. Um, this is this is great work. Again, this book is called "Getting the Truth." I am D.B. Cooper. But before. Uh, we end our conversation tonight, Joe. I've got to ask you, um, you worked on the Jimmy Hoffa case. Yeah. T- tell me about that experience. Well, it was a fantastic experience. Um, let me say Jimmy Hoffa was a revered leader for uh, Teamster members. He he gained um, rights and benefits for those workers for years that they would never uh, forget him for. So when he was released from prison with the agreement that he would never run for president of the Teamsters again, uh, he uh, rethought that after he got out. Remember from the Kennedys? Yeah. He uh, rethought that and uh, said, I'm going to rerun. And at this time, uh, Fitzsimmons was the... uh, President of the Teamsters. Um, so, uh, my opinion is that the mob just couldn't afford that. They had things going their way. And uh, Hoffa was, uh, while he worked with them on occasion, he was hard to handle. I mean, he wouldn't do things just because they told him to do it. And, uh, they didn't want that. They wanted uh, unknown versus an unknown, and they took him out. Wow. And and you were one of the lead investigators? I was, yeah. For the state police, I was the lead investigator. Hmm. Um, 
And the final disposition of that case is that it was unresolved as well, right? Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's closed either. It's just unresolved. Mm. Well, you know, we. I think all the people involved are dead now. Yeah. And um, so Amazing. that happened in, uh, what year did that happen? That 75? was 1975. Yeah, that was 75. Yeah, it was four years after the Cooper case. Wow. Um, Joe, your work is terrific, and you've uh, done a great job presenting it here tonight. Now, where can people find your book, Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper? Well, both books are on Amazon, and also if they want autographed copies or the audios uh, that contain uh, the, the real conversations from Walt between Walt and Carl, uh, they need to go to my website, www.kmiinvestigations, all one word, dot com. Maybe you can put that on your website for me. Yeah, we will do that. It's kmiinvestigations.com. Um, right, and then there's an author page there. They can go to that and uh, buy my book, and I'll, uh, I'll sign them and send them to them. That's terrific. Um, again, this is this is fabulous work. I appreciate your time and your thoroughness and the way you were able to present it in such an easy-to-follow-and-understand fashion. That's important, too. So, Joe, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.